Okay, so we are this morning continuing looking at divorce and remarriage. Um, for practical reasons, I'm focusing this on the question of Holy Communion, uh, whether someone who is divorced and remarried with their original spouse still alive, whether they may be readmitted to Holy Communion, and obviously with that, before that, um, be admitted to confession and absolved and reconciled. Um, so let's recap what we thought we were looking at on Monday. Um, we looked at the scriptural basis. So, you know, the Lord's words in, as recorded in Mark and Matthew and Luke, um, that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Um, we looked briefly, but you had also in the reading text, the pornea clause. Um, so... The only exception the Lord gives is in the case of pornea. Um, we noted that, or I noted that that isn't, there is a word for adultery in Greek, that would be moikia. It doesn't say that. It says pornea, just some other type of immorality. Modern scripture scholarship tends to the conclusion that this is a reference to various Gentile unions, either polygamy or... Um, degrees of relationship the Jews would have considered incestuous which would mean that those unions therefore weren't real marriages and someone in that situation would be free to leave that person in fact should leave that person but would then be free to marry and then we looked at the kind of practical application in terms of um, the norm you know someone who is living is a parishioner they are divorced, they are remarried. How do you as a pastor engage with them? Well, on one level, we need to continue to seek to have them know that they are part of the church. They haven't ceased to be part of the church. They aren't excommunicated. But we also need to be authentic to them and to us and to the Lord to call them to a different way of living, to point out to them that actually they have an original union, a marriage, and that faithfulness to that is incompatible with remaining as husband and wife with the current person you're remarried to. So we discussed the option of living as brother and sister. So if there are some additional requirements for you to remain with this person who isn't before the Lord and the church actually your spouse but maybe you've got children together and so you stay together so that the children get to have their parents in the same household. Or I also flagged up the, the scenario, which is also very common, where the couple are just so elderly that to separate and cease to physically support each other at that stage in life is another scenario where it just doesn't seem at that stage to be right. But if they're gonna remain in the household together to be committed to living as brother and sister in order to be authentic to what marriage means and not being in, objectively speaking, what is an ongoing state of adultery. Um, okay, and we were looking at various church documents that say that. Um, 
so all of that kind of is summarizing what was um, consistent in all the church documents and undisputed at an official level until 2014. And as you'd have read in the reading you did with uh, Dodaro, I think that's how his name's pronounced, I don't actually know, um, his summary of his book, um, or the articles in that book, he notes in 2014, uh, Walter Casper produced this book calling for a change in the practice towards the divorce and remarriage. And he made a brief reference to the book in an address he gave to cardinals in the build-up to the two synods, 2014 and 15. And a lot of the discussion at those synods was about this question. Um, or the, as I said on Monday, the media discussion was about this question. Um, at the synods themselves, I think, as is often the case, there's a different narrative, and this was just one of the things looked at. Then 2016, uh, the Pope comes out with the post-synodal document, Amoris Laetitiae. Um, and that, um, that's really what we're gonna look at today. Has that changed anything or not? Um, I think what we're gonna do structurally to make sure we cover the most important materials. We'll look at that first. If we have time, I'm going to look at my summary of the Greek Orthodox practice. Um, the Greek Orthodox practice is not, on all kinds of levels, helpful pastorally. Um, so the Greek Orthodox ritual, um, the prayers refer to the the wife in the new union uh, compares her to the prostitute Rahab, um, compares their union um, in a second prayer very unfavorably in terms of this Greek notion of condescension. So I've read commentators saying that that's okay as long as you're using ancient Greek and the couple don't actually know what you're saying. <laughs> um, but if you've got a bride there who actually understands the words, actually this isn't what they've come there for. Um, so to say, oh, we'll use the Greek practice, actually that doesn't really tick the box that's being looked for either. So let's um, look at page eight of my notes then. Um, So the document of Morris Letizia, uh, the joy of love. Um, so let's say the 2014 and 15 synods on the family were followed by the 2016 post synodal apostolic exhortation. The document deals with a wide range of issues regarding pastoral care of marriages and families. So for us with our particular question, we need to be very clear, this document was not about divorce and remarriage, it was about marriages and families on all kinds of issues and actually has a very long and many people would say very helpful section on marriage preparation um, among other things. 
So as I say, contrary to the impression of much media and church media coverage, divorce and remarriage only features a very small part of this document and is a very small part of the two synods. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly controversial summary I've put there. The key message of Amor Satitiae is pastoral accompaniment. This is to be offered to couples, to families, in their wide variety of difficult situations. So that at both synods, they were talking about the challenges of family life today. How does the church address those challenges? Pastoral accompaniment. So in a sense, in the same way I hear with you, as a formator, uh, the model that's given to us in our documents is accompaniment, that we are to accompany you, support you in your journey to the priesthood, in your formation to the priesthood. Um, with families in their difficulties in the modern world, we as pastors need to accompany them. There needs to be, from the church, pastoral accompaniment on all kinds of issues, on all kinds of levels. But that includes, therefore, pastoral accompaniment must be offered to the divorced and remarried. Um, and then, quoting from Amor Satsitsia itself, Jacob, would you mind reading that block quote? It is important that... It is important that the divorced who have entered a new union should be made to feel part of the church. They are not excommunicated and they should not be treated as such, since they remain part of the ecclesial community. These situations require careful discernment and respectful accompaniment. Language or conduct that might lead them to feel discriminated against should be avoided, and they should be encouraged to participate in the life of the community. The Christian community's care of such persons is not to be considered a weakening of its faith and testimony to the indissolubility of marriage. Rather, such care is a particular expression of its charity. So within that quote, the sub-quotes are taken from different um, contributions of bishops at the Synod of Bishops. Um, and it seems to me what's being said there is in continuity with what was in previous documents about the need for those who are divorced and remarried to, well, not admitted to communion, made to be feel and know that they are part of the church. Now, the controversial debated question, can the divorced and remarried be admitted to Holy Communion? And I note that a single footnote caused great controversy and has been given different interpretations by different Episcopal conferences. So I'm guessing you're all aware of this already, but um, it's the usual pattern with significant papal documents that around the world Episcopal conferences will produce a response, usually calling the faithful in their area to engage with what the Pope has said about whatever, or this is how we're going to carry this forward here, or whatever. Um, so that's not an unusual pattern. Um, what is kind of unusual is on this occasion how the Episcopal conferences went in radically different directions, uh, as in quite competing directions. Um, they can't all be right. So, so in the context of referring to the accompaniment of those in irregular situations, 
Footnote 351 in the paragraph 305 said, in certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments, since I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and a nourishment for the weak. So in there he's quoting back to what he said in his first encyclical, Evangelii Gaudi. And the question is what that means. So does this mean giving Holy Communion and confession to those who remain in second unions? That's how some interpreted it. I note there that paragraph 305 actually didn't refer to the divorced and remarried. It referred to those in difficult situations, of all kinds of difficult situations, which is what the Synod was about. So to take that and then say, ah, this is applying to divorce and remarriage is making a connection that isn't in the paragraph itself. Paragraph 305 was actually about a broad range of undefined, difficult cases and wounded families. To apply the reference to irregular, of the reference to irregular situations to the divorce and remarried, is to claim that Pope Francis intended to reverse previous practice by means of an obscure footnote. And I ask the question, is that really likely? Is that really coherent? Uh, and I say, in a subsequent news conference, Pope Francis stated that he didn't even know which footnote the questioners were referring to. Is it really coherent to think he planned a moral revolution through a hidden footnote in the midst of a paragraph in the midst of a long document. I don't think that's coherent. So it is confusing, and a bit like his airplane interviews and whatever, there is a lot of media confusion and unhelpful commentary, but that doesn't mean he was intending a moral revolution by means of a footnote. That would be my summary. Um, and if we think about the media office in the Vatican now, um, I can remember under John Paul II, uh, the media office in the Vatican was a very tight ship. It was very professional, it was very slick. Um, you know, politicians these days, do you use the word spin doctors over here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before spin doctors were a thing, Pope John Paul II had a spin doctor. Um, and when the media came to his press conferences, they got documents that he produced that were already underlined, highlighted, indicating for the media people, these are the bits the Pope is saying in this long document. Um, now when Pope Benedict came along, he removed the media office that there had been. He appointed someone fairly junior to a slightly comparable position, but he was quite explicit. Pope Benedict wanted to direct the media, um, engage with the media himself. Um, now you might say that was naive, overly trusting, but he wanted to directly engage with the media news reporters himself in what he said to them, not have what he said filtered. And I would say, 
with that through his years and then even more so as time has gone on there's just been increasing media distortion of anything that comes out of the Vatican and you don't know who is saying what in what what comes out of there but I would just make that point I, I don't think it's just under Pope Francis under Benedict as well we had this increasing drift to ambiguity and chaos in, in the media office in the Vatican I don't know if you'd have read commentators on Pope Francis when he was Archbishop in Argentina so he was keen on priests not wasting time um, reading all the papers he, he only had one paper he read even as an Archbishop um, and I think that has the flip side he's reliant on what his advisors around him are telling him who are therefore filtering for him what he hears and what he doesn't hear so how much does he actually know about what commentary is being said on various things what his advisors tell him and that would seem to be from what's coming out fairly chaotic sadly and so we hear on one day one thing on another day another thing from one commentator this from another commentator that so what is the official position well I would say actually it's not changed so let's look at what the bishops said so as I said bishops conferences usual pattern Pope comes out with a statement bishops conferences across the world come out with some application some endorsement some whatever um, page 9 there I've listed a few of the bishops conferences so say the, the USA bishops now it is significant they didn't comment um, and the bishops, American bishops have said there won't be a statement. Um, it's been speculated that's because the American bishops actually disagree among themselves so much they can't agree on a statement. Um, the UK bishops, similarly, you know, I don't, it's not very relevant to you where I'm from, but um, I at least know what happened there. Again, no comment. Um, our cardinal fairly publicly said he couldn't make it, or they wouldn't make a statement because the young conservative priests wouldn't put up with anything he was going to say. So, whatever reason, there's no statement there either. The Argentina, Argentine bishops, um, now they produced a fairly lengthy statement, um, or relatively lengthy, but fairly non-specific. Um, so I say offered a non-specific statement capable of various interpretations. So the commentary you would have hopefully read from Edward Peters, um, he's fairly aggressive in dismissing it, but I think you could say in reverse, actually, they've just repeated what Amoris Letizio says. Um, now, Pope Francis, as an Argentine himself, it's not maybe surprising, he looked at that comment in depth um, he endorsed the Buenos Aires guidelines um, and his endorsement has been published in official Vatican documents saying the writing is very good and explicitly the meaning of chapter 8 of Amoris Letizia which is the chapter that covers the disputed questions here saying there are no other interpretations 
which presumably he means no other valid interpretations. Poland's bishops. Um, so they say pastoral accompaniment, and here I am very much paraphrasing from them, but I, I think I'm being faithful to what they're saying. Pastoral accompaniment is a strategy to lead people to the same goal of conversion, not conversation. Um, that was articulated by John Paul II and the whole tradition before him. So, same goal, we're wanting to call people to what the Lord says, call people to conversion, but pastoral accompaniment is just a more clear expression of the strategy of how to do it. And articulated, it could never be coherent to discern a practice contrary to the tradition in terms of who may or may not be admitted to Holy so this word discernment is in a more sotitia. What does that mean? Well, in terms of what it can't mean is something that rejects the tradition. Now the Maltese bishops, they give a very different interpretation. Well, I've summarized this rupture. Um, so the Polish bishops arguing for continuity with the past. Um, the Maltese bishops are very different. So they take this word discernment. They say the couple who are divorced and remarried, they need discernment, accompanied by a pastor, and that this discernment can result in a separated or divorced person who is living in a new relationship, manages with an informed and enlightened conscience to acknowledge and believe that he or she are at peace with God. He or she then cannot be precluded from participating in the sacraments of reconciliation and the Eucharist. So, key phrases, at peace with God, um, and cannot be precluded from participating. But that they figure this out themselves. Um, they, there isn't a court, there isn't a judgment. Um, so there's some talk of accompaniment by a pastor, but not in any specific way. They come to the conclusion they're at peace with God. And then um, the priest would be in a position to say no to them for communion or anything else. Um, and note that the Vatican offered no specific comment on this other than the kind of typical, official, non-specific thanks that the Pope made to the Maltese bishops via a Vatican official. So that's kind of what you'd expect with any statement that the Vatican gives a, a nod, thank you for your letter. Um, now I note here, um, so you know, from an English perspective, this was what the English Reformation was all about. Uh, Henry VIII wanted a second wife, then another five after that, um, that he felt at peace with God um, with each of those five wives, additional five wives. Um, and he would be able to say that he discerned that after long consultation with trusted clergy, that he cut the heads off the clergy who he didn't trust and who disagreed with him. Um, so... So where are we now? 
was I put there, there's been no Vatican ahead of myself. So with all that kind of chaos and different interpretations, um, five senior cardinals or relatively senior cardinals submitted five dubia to the Pope asking for a clarification about the status of a number of the background issues related to this. So those are listed on page 11. Um, and there's been no response to those. And a couple of those cardinals have since died now because that was about four years ago. Um, Now, I gave you all this to um, read for your reading. Shall we shift to discussing these texts? Able to do that? So, um, 